Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors here, and we are continuing in a series this morning in the New Testament letter of Ephesians. Uh, every Sunday before the sermon, like we just did, we, we have congregational prayer. Uh, and I've been told by many of you that congregational prayer is one of your favorite parts of our service. Some of you, it's what kept you kind of coming back to Christ Central. Uh, we have Wednesday midweek prayer every week, and I think those who come to Wednesday midweek prayer would say that it's one of their favorite times of the week. I was talking to somebody this past week over lunch who said they've really been enjoying personal prayer time uh, and just their relationship with the Lord recently. Rachel, my wife, and I try to pray uh, every night together, and we'll miss some nights, but when we do pray, we say how good it is to pray together. I don't think if you're a Christian here this morning that you would disagree that prayer is extremely important. But I don't know if any of us here this morning would say that we pray as we should. Right? If we're honest, most of us find prayer difficult, confusing, at times boring, shunning it or avoiding it except in times of crisis. Right? Charles Spurgeon, who was a famous Baptist pastor in the 1800s, once wrote about his own struggle with prayer. This is what he wrote said, I usually feel more dissatisfied with my prayers than I do anything else. And that's from a man who was one of the most respected and revered pastors in church history. He was known for his praying, loved prayer, preached over a hundred sermons on prayer, and yet he still felt like he didn't quite get it. Amen. The presence or the absence of prayer in our life is quite revealing. Prayer is important. I would also add what we pray is as revealing and extremely important. Our passage this morning is Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. And, and what I want us to understand is what Paul is praying for. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's word in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. This is God's word to us this morning. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. All right, let's pray. God, I ask that you would come now and speak to us. The God is uh, Israel in the Old Testament was fed with manna from heaven and you told them to open wide their mouths and you would fill it. We pray that you would cause us to want to open our mouths this morning. Yeah. And that you would feed us. And you would fill us with the fullness of God. We pray that you would speak to us, that I would be removed so that Jesus, you are clearly seen, that we would taste and see your goodness this morning, oh God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. 
Well, let, let me remind you or tell you if you've missed it uh, in, in previous sermons that the city of Ephesus was a pagan city. It was a wealthy city. It was a cultural center for the region. Christians in Ephesus were pushed to the margins of society. There was suffering for being a Christian. It was hard. Circumstances difficult. Suffering inevitable if you were a Christian in Ephesus. What I want you to see is that Paul does not spend time praying about their circumstances, which would be my tendency, right? If I'm suffering, I'm praying about my circumstances, but Paul, Paul does not pray about their circumstances. Two women in our church shared this past week at midweek prayer about personal suffering, and then they asked for prayer, that they would trust God, that they would rest in God, that they would look to him in the midst of the suffering. Now there would, is nothing wrong in asking for healing. We just prayed for it. We should pray for healing, and, and we did on Wednesday morning, but what I was impressed by was their request that God would primarily be working on the inside of their hearts and not primarily on the outside in their circumstances. Paul doesn't pray for the circumstances of the marginalized and suffering church. He rather prays for their beliefs, for their knowledge. Paul wants to move them into their spiritual roots and ask the question, why? Why am I seeing the world as I do? Why am I asking the questions that I'm asking? Why am I motivated in sadness or am I motivated in joy? You see, Paul is concerned about the inner life of the church. And not just having knowledge of the mind, but a knowledge that grabs a hold of their whole being. All right, we all know there's a difference in knowing something and really knowing it. Amen. Right? There's a difference in having knowledge and then having a knowledge that changes the way you view life and the way that you live life. And right? I can tell you how good the salted butter caramel ice cream is at the parlor downtown. Right? When you put it in your mouth, it's a taste that you just never want to leave. You want it to stay there forever. I can tell you that, and you can know it's delicious. You know it, because I told it to you. But if you go on a Friday night, and you see the long line that is there every Friday night, you may not think it's worth standing in line. But if you taste it, if you put it in your mouth, and you experience it, standing in the line is worth it. Because now you know. A child can be adopted into a family at the age of 10 years old. The court can make a ruling. They're now part of the family legally. And the child knows they're part of the family. But the 10-year-old is not automatically secure in the love of that family. The child doesn't feel the freedom yet to be their self with the family. They know they're in the family, but something deep down inside has not been convinced yet. See, Paul's prayer is that they would really know. Deep down in their inner being that this knowledge would grab a hold of their whole being. Paul's prayer is like the prayer in Psalm 34 that the church would taste and see. Taste and see the Lord. That their belief and their knowledge of God would be experiential and it would grab hold of them. So we're going to look at four things that Paul prays for this church, for us. Presence, love, fullness, power. 
Let's look first at presence. Not like presence, like gifting you a present, but like presence, like I'm present with you. So presence, verse 14, look at the passage. It says, for this reason, I bow my knees. Now, I've got to stop there because it was Jewish custom that the posture of prayer was to stand. That was how they prayed. They stood. But Paul says, I bow my knees, which we do see happen some in Scripture. It happens when people come into God's presence and are overcome with His glory, and then in humility and reverence, they bow. Like the Apostle John on the island of Patmos who sees the glory of God and bows and falls on his face before God. Paul is overcome. He's brought into humility and irreverence as he understands what he has already wrote about in chapters 2 through 3, that God is building this new humanity, a church that has no walls and no barriers. And then he writes again here in verse 14, for this God is the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He is the Father over every family. Not specific to nationalities or to chosen races. He is the Father over every family. Paul is in awe and he bows his knees. Now, Father is is not just an intimate word. I think we think Father and we automatically go to intimacy. It is that, but it's also authoritative, right? Saying he's the Father is saying he's the ruler. He's the boss. He's in charge over all things, right? There are times growing up in my life that I would want to crawl into my dad's lap and let him read me a book. He was my father. But there were other times when I would get home after school and I might be misbehaving and my mom just had to say one sentence and I'd start behaving. That sentence was, you just wait until your father gets home, right? You just wait until your father gets home. Authority. God the Father has authority over the whole world, over every people. Now the scriptures tell us He's the creator who formed the world. He is the one who knows every star, not one of them is missing. He is the one who rules over the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. He is the one who holds the hearts of kings in His hand. During Advent, we prepare and we're expectant to celebrate, celebrate Christmas morning. And we should be blown away and amazed that the manger in Bethlehem held the Lord of creation. But what does Paul tell the, the church? Christ dwells in your heart. That the Lord of creation, the ruler of all things, the sovereign and all-powerful dwells in us. Our God is transcendent, but He's not remote. He dwells in us through faith in Christ. He dwells. That's permanent residence. That's not a fleeting here and there presence. If we've put our faith in Christ, He dwells. The Almighty Lord of creation takes up permanent residence in us. We're never alone. We're never without help. He never leaves nor forsakes His people. Do you feel weak this morning? Do you feel like sin often has its way in your life? Your self-will, your self-control will not give you lasting strength that Paul's talking about. But believing and really knowing that Christ dwells in you 
will give you strength in your weakness. Let's look secondly at love. Second thing Paul prays for is that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Again, how do you, how do you know something that surpasses knowledge? Right? It's tasting, it's seeing, it's a deep and profound knowing. Why do you think so much art, poems, music, paintings are about love? There's something so deep about love that it surpasses our ability to comprehend it with just our minds. It, it grabs a hold of us. Paul continues in verse 17, that they'd be rooted and grounded in love. Rooted, that's a horticultural image. It's like a tree that is rooted deeply. Grounded, that's an architectural image, like a house that has a firm foundation. If you've ever watched the Weather Channel, when a hurricane is coming to the coast of North Carolina, the, the winds are blowing, right? The rain is sideways, and the power of the storm is being felt. You see the weatherman or the weather woman is anchoring the show and you see the trees, they're just horizontal, right? They're just blink, being blown like this. And you wonder, how do the trees survive or how do some of those homes survive the storm? See, the trees are deeply rooted. The homes have a firm foundation. When the storms of life blow our way. When life gets difficult, when circumstances are trying, when loss is real and shame is heavy, Paul is telling us that the love of God is what keeps us from being blown away. And the love of God, verse 18, is wide. It encompasses all people, every race, every tongue, tribe, and nation. It covers every sin committed. The worst sinner cannot get outside his love. And it's long. When did it begin? Before the world began, and it has no end. And it's high, all the way into the heavens. And it's deep, all the way to the depths of hell did Jesus descend for us. John Stott tells us that the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. The love of Christ is an ocean with no shoreline and no bottom. It's a landscape that fills our every horizon. There are no boundaries outside of which we might step to the love of Christ. You will never cease to explore the new vistas of his love. To really know this love, it gives us deep security, a deep, deep security. Brian Wilcox emailed a few of us an article out of the New York Times this uh, past week on the cult of likability. I don't know if any of you saw the, the article. The article talked about us living in a reputation economy where everyone is a critic and everyone can rate you and, and your service on a scale of one to five stars if you're on Yelp. Or they can like you or, or not like you if you're on Facebook and they can make comments about you. And I have to be honest with you. As a pastor of this church, this reputation economy scares me. Amen. For this reason, one of the first things that I'm tempted to think, that I'm tempted to, to think, when a new person visits Christ Central Church, will they like me? And then secondly, will they like the church? 
See, I could be tempted to see how many likes our Facebook page has or, or differing reviews people might give our church and can be tempted to be driven by wanting five stars on Yelp and 500 likes on Facebook. I need this prayer. I need to know the deep, deep love of Christ, rooted and grounded in it. Because if that's the case, I'm not going to be swayed by people's opinions. I have a long way to go, but I long to be secure in God's love. So where is your insecurity of being disliked? Don't you, you long to not care what people think about you? Just, just don't give a rip what people say or think about you. The only thing that enables us to love people who may not like us and at the same time not care what they say about us is the love of Jesus. Amen. The second thing we see about the love is, is that knowing the love of God gives us power to resist temptation. You know, there's power in our passions. There's power. Because the reality is that we will do what we love. When facing temptation, I will choose what I love the most in that moment. In that moment, I'm either going to love sin or I will love God. One of them will persuade me which is why what we need to have in our lives is what some have called the expulsive power of a greater affection. Because sheer willpower and discipline is not enough to give you consistent choosing Christ over sin. The more we know of his love towards us, the more overcome by his love, then the more power we have to resist temptation. I heard a pastor tell a story about a church in Atlanta, Georgia that, that had a homeless man attending. His name was David. Everyone called him David the Pirate. I guess he must have had a patch over his eye. But David the Pirate started coming to, to worship every week. And David would come with the smell of Jim Beam and Johnny Walker strong on his breath. And David was given the job of handing out bulletins on Sunday morning. Until one day, David dropped the bulletin and he also dropped an F-bomb. <laughs> and so the, the church thought it might be better to give David a different job away from the kids so the kids would not hear it. And, and David gladly went and served in that role. In one service, the pastor was finishing preaching the sermon, and he was making the transition to the Lord's table, which is what we often do here on a Sunday morning. And as he was transitioning from the sermon to the table, David came all the way down all the way down front, weeping loudly. Everybody in the church saw and heard David. Some in the church rose up and they gathered around David and were praying for him at the front of the church. And the pastor continued to talk about the love of Christ displayed at the table, the broken body and the bloodshed of Jesus. And then David stood up off the ground and said, Pastor, this gospel is kicking my tail. Except he didn't say tail. This gospel is kicking my tail, and the whole church was silent. What David was saying is that the love of God was working him over and over and over. That the gospel of God's abounding love was causing David to see his sin and then be moved toward God because of the expulsive power of a greater affection. And let me tell you, Christ Central Church, we need the love of Christ to work us over to kick our tail. 
Because the power to change us on the inside and to free us from sin will happen when we are changed in what we love. If we can be a people who know how wide and long and high and deep is Christ's love, obedience and righteousness is just going to flow from us. Just be natural. Here's the last thing about the love of God. Is that it gives us freedom to trust God. When we understand the vastness of God's love, we'll see the depths of our sin, which will lead us to trust in ourselves less and to trust in the Lord more. And if I know the love of God as a pastor, I can be set free in ministry to not worry about what I'm doing or what I'm not doing. I can trust that God is at work in all of your lives. When I meet with someone for counseling, or even in needs of mercy and justice, I know, because I know my deepest need, I know their deepest need is not for me to fix their problem, but it's to give them Jesus and let God work them over. Parenting, parents, I know some of you have been talking about the difficulty of parenting lately. We're entering into that stage as a family. It's way more fun to parent when you are free from the worry of controlling and fixing your children and to trust that God is at work and that his heart is for you and for your children. Here's a third thing that Paul prays for, fullness. Presence, love, and then fullness. Paul continues to pray that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's somewhat hard to understand. It's, it's really a prayer that, that we, that they, the church... And Ephesus would grow into full spiritual maturity. I think Paul had the last words of Jesus' high priestly prayer in his mind when he prays this. Listen to the high priestly prayer of John 17, 26. This is Jesus. He says, I pray uh, that I, I be, made, be made known to them uh, and your name may be no, made known to them and that I will continue to make it known to them that the love with which you have loved me Jesus is praying to the Father, may be in them, and I in them. So let me just state it clearly because I don't really know a different way to to state it. Jesus' intention with you, if you are a Christian, is to one day finish your life by bringing you into a cosmic, final, consummating dance with the very Trinity itself. C.S. Lewis called it the great dance between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A self-contained, fully mutual, never-ending, overflowing cooperation of pure delight and love. Now, this is not that we're going to become a God, but that we will be caught up in the dance and the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And know God beyond anything that we have the ability and capacity to know this morning. And if being caught up in that dance doesn't reorient your inner man this morning, I don't know what will. That for eternity, we will know the love that the Father had for the Son, and that the Son had for the Father, and that the Spirit has for the Father and the Son. We will be caught up in the fullness of God. Let's look lastly at the power that Paul prays for lastly. Verse 20 
Verse 20 and 21 are powerful verses. I think many of you know these verses. Many of you have prayed these verses. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Paul prays that we would know the power of God. That we would really know that God is able. We sing that song, he is able. Paul prays that we would know he is able. Now it's easy to take verse 20 and think about all the good things that we want that God could give us. The spouse, the job, the house, the children, grad school. Now God is able to give those things to his people. He is able. I've loved hearing recently of two women in our church who've had extreme difficulty getting pregnant. Years of trying to get pregnant, miscarriages, and now both are pregnant. What many thought would never happen, God has provided and done what many thought was impossible. He is able, and we should pray that he provide. But what about the woman who never gets pregnant? Or the person who never gets married that wants to be married? Or the person who doesn't get a job that's jobless? In 1983, a childless woman named Mary Nelson, she was working in her garden in St. Louis, Missouri, praying while she worked. She asked God to help not only in her grief for the absence of children in her life, but to use her in the lives of other women. And the absence of a child in her home created a longing for life in Mary's heart. That she asked God in that garden that he would give her, help her to give life to children in whatever way he might lead. And nine months later, nine months, Mary gave birth to the first pregnancy resource center in St. Louis, Missouri. And since that time, literally thousands of children have been spared due to her prayers and the labors of Mary. And others have followed See, our God is able to do immeasurably above what we ask. We know only to ask for what we think is good for us now and what we think is good for our immediate family, but God knows what is good for our children's children. And he knows what's good that will bring multitudes into the kingdom of God from places we can't even imagine. Our God is able and he's infinitely wise. Verse 21 is the chief purpose for which Paul prays the church will taste and see. That he would be glorified in the church. In Christ's central church, that God would be glorified. He turns back to the corporate. It's about us. The church displaying his glory in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. We need more amens in this church. We get them from a few people. We need some amens. Because amen means yes. Amen is I wholeheartedly affirm and agree. Yes, Jesus Christ is God's amen, church. It is through Jesus that everything I've talked about this morning is made possible. Where we have said no, no to believing God's presence is better than life itself, no that God's love is better than other loves, and we've said yes to sin. We've said yes to life on our own terms. We've, We've said yes Apart from God, Christ has said yes to God's judgment. Yes to the obedience 
to his father. He has said yes to the cross. Jesus said yes so that we who say no can taste and see. Having Christ grab a hold of our whole being. Jesus is God's amen. Here's what I want to ask you to do. Take home assignment. Don't do this often. Take home assignment. Prayer is important. What we pray is as important. I want to ask you this week, take this passage and pray it every day and personalize it. Pray this passage every day and insert your name, your family's name, and this church's name. And may the Lord be gracious to allow you and me and this church to taste and see his presence, love, fullness, and power. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would, that you would help us to taste and see. Lord, help us to know deep down, to be captured by these truths this morning. Lord God, would you do it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.